0: Welcome to science and non-duality. What is non-duality? universal forces the collective conscious being aware
1: trauma is not the external event that happens trauma is the impact of that event which is the disconnection from ourselves that matter is energy energy is matter that's what emc squared is about there's a language without nouns there is a language without subjugation there's a language without objectifying But if it's recorded then we there is a collapse but if it's
0: not then it's the infinite welcome back to the sounds of sand podcast this is michael Riley. i wanted to talk a bit about how this podcast is produced and how you can support the production costs of this show are solely supported by our sand members sand members are our community in addition to supporting the mission of science and non-duality members gain access to the entire library of recorded live sand events community gatherings films and interviews It's a collection of over 1,000 recordings available for you to continue to learn, share, expand, and connect. Your support means everything to us. It empowers us to create new programs, films, events, and this podcast. So head over to scienceandnonduality.com slash join or find a link in the show notes about our monthly and annual memberships. And our guest today is Timothy Owen Desmond, who also goes by the name Todd, T-O-D, and Todd has dedicated his life to studying philosophy during his first semester at Boston College, where he earned a B.A. with a major in philosophy and political science in 1993. For the next 13 years, he studied and wrote about philosophical and cosmological topics while working on a tree farm in Southern Maryland, and then while working at various other jobs in Boston and Washington, D.C., In 2006, he went back to school to earn his Master of Liberal Studies degree from Georgetown University. After that, he earned an MA in Political Science with a concentration in Alternative Future Studies from the University of Hawaii in Manoa, and finally, a PhD in Philosophy and Religion with a concentration in Philosophy, Cosmology, and Consciousness from the California Institute of Integral Studies. And he especially enjoys writing about the parallels between psychology and physics. And we get into that today with his book, Psyche and the Singularity. Please welcome to the Sounds of Sand podcast, Timothy Owen Desmond. Okay, I'm here with Todd. Thanks so much for being on the Sounds of Sand podcast. Thanks, Michael. So you have a really... Beautiful and expansive book and body of work that I'm excited to dive into because I love conversations that feel like a journey. And I think we'll be on a bit of a journey today. But just as a way to orient listeners, would you mind sharing a bit about your background and what inspired you to create this map of the intersection of Jungian psychology and physics and string theory? <laughs>
1: Sure. I, well, I grew up in Bethesda, Maryland, and I went to Catholic school for all but two years in high school. And then I went to a Catholic college, Boston College, and I didn't want to go to college. I actually uh, wanted to go into the army for lack of a better idea. I knew I did not want to keep going to school. I did well, got good grades, but I was just bored with it took the test for the army and uh, halfway through the recruiting sergeant said, okay, you can stop, which scared me because I failed the driver's written test the first time on the last question. And I said, oh no. And he said, oh no, you only had to get half right. So you got (laughs) half right already. Mm -hmm. And then uh, he called my house. My dad answered the phone. And uh, (laughs) then when I got home, my dad said, oh, the army called. It said you took the test i said yeah he goes oh no you got to go to college if you're going to go in the army go after college and you're going to go to boston college which is where i went Mm -hmm. because you owe me that's what he said to me because Mm -hmm. you owe me because i'm your dad and so i said okay went to boston college and they make you take a year of philosophy and theology at jesuit schools and they offer a class where it's a six credit philosophy theology combination um and I'm trying to remember the name of that particular class, uh, Perspectives of the Western Mind, I think it was. At any rate, I fell in love with philosophy when I took that. I really liked it a lot. I remember reading St. Augustine, thinking, oh, this could have been written yesterday. It seems so current. And uh, and then Plato and all these great philosophers. Every time I read a philosopher, I got convinced by that philosopher. <laughs> then I realized, wait a minute, this guy said the exact opposite thing the other guy said. Um, So then I had, oh, wouldn't it be great, this dream that if I could write a comprehensive philosophy like these guys and every piece fits together and you're describing the whole cosmos and every little part of it. So I finished Boston College with a double major in philosophy and political science and then independently studied for nine years trying to get published. I wrote about Plato and Nietzsche and the Vedanta philosophy and I kept getting rejected. And finally, someone wrote me a letter and said, this is really good work, but you're never going to get published with this kind of work if you don't have a PhD. Hmm. So I was like, oh, this is a life decision. I didn't really want to go back to academia because I knew there was a prejudice in academia among most of academics against spirituality. Hmm. It's more of the default position as a mechanistic, materialistic even atheistic worldview. So I figured, well, this I think is my calling, my vocation for God. And I went back. First to Georgetown University, we got a master's in liberal studies, and then to University of Hawaii for a political science master's in alternative futures studies with Jim Dater. And then finally at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco to get a PhD in philosophy and religion with a concentration in philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness. it's called the PCC program. And I took a class there. That was in, in the year 2010. And I took a class with Dr. Sean Kelly, who's a mm-hmm. Jungian and a Hegelian. He's a great guy. And I uh, read Memories, Dreams, Reflections by Carl Jung, his autobiography, which came out the year after he died, 1961 he died, and 1962 it came out. And he explained in that book a near-death experience that he had. In 1944, he broke his foot, and then he had a heart attack in the hospital. This is Jung's near-death experience, right? Yeah, Carl Jung. And then he said, it seemed to me that he rose out of his body, looking down at his body, Above the hospital in Switzerland, then finally a thousand miles above the earth, he said he later figured out that's how high he would have had to have been to see the reddish sands of Arabia and the white clouds, the curvature of the earth. He was above Ceylon looking over India, and then he saw an enormous hollowed out black boulder the size of his house, and it was hollowed out into a temple like the ones he had seen in the Gulf of Bengal when he visited India and inside in the antechamber was a black Hindu in a white robe sitting in a lotus posture. Behind him was a brilliantly lit room, he said, where he sensed that all the people to whom he belonged in reality were waiting for him. He felt that if he could enter that room, he would learn everything about what had become before that life and everything that would come after, this chain of lives. The implication was reincarnation. Mm -hmm. And as he approached Approached the temple, he said he felt his whole life get ripped away from him, which was an extremely painful process. And then it was all given back to him, and he lived his whole life simultaneously. And he was about to enter this temple when the the primal form, the kind of subtle material body of his doctor, who he called Dr. H, rose up above uh, the earth and said, the earth has need of you or something like that. The earth needs you. You need to come back. And then he woke up in his uh, hospital and he felt horrible about it because he had been so free. And then every night at midnight for the next three weeks, he would wake up for about an hour and have these mystical experiences, most tremendous experiences of my life, he said, where he would experience the various archetypes like the, the ones I remember, the marriage of Hera and Zeus and then the garden of pomegranates and all manner of archetypes and this blissful experience. And then he summed it all up saying that every morning he would dread the the coming of the morning because it seemed to him as if each of us is imprisoned in our own three dimensional box of illusion that is hung up to the horizon of the cosmos by a thread. And during his nightly, visions, he said it seemed to him that the past, the present, and the future are interwoven specifically out at this horizon of the cosmos where he experienced the archetypes of the collective unconscious blissfully. So I read that and I generally believe what Carl Jung says, but it just didn't strike me as particularly fascinating compared to so many other fascinating things that I'd been reading. And, uh, But what struck me was that summer, it was the 4th of July in 2010, I was working on a paper Well, some of my friends were out, and I was supposed to join them later. And on the TV in the background was Through the Wormhole with Morgan Freeman. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, episode two of the first season called The Riddle of Black Holes, and it was an interview with Leonard Susskind, Stanford string theorist Leonard Susskind, who uh, won the black hole war against Stephen Hawking. And it was about information conservation and how bits of information are swallowed by black holes. But Susskind describes the universe as an inside-out black hole expanding from a singularity. And where space-time is expanding from our perspective on Earth at the speed of light, that's called the horizon of the cosmos, the spherical border encompassing our observable universe. And the bottom line was that he said the past, the present, and the future of the entire universe are recorded as if on a holographic film at each point of this encompassing sphere, the horizon of the cosmos. And they radiate into the volume of space with the cosmic microwave background radiation, echo of the Big Bang on these fundamental elastic threads of energy, and that the cubic illusion that we live in is like a cinematic hologram, that's his phrase, cinematic hologram, projected from the horizon of the cosmos by threads. So I saw a perfect parallel with Carl Jung's near-death experience. I remember hearing it and then realizing, Mm -hmm. oh, this is gonna be probably my dissertation topic Mm -hmm. because for a while at Georgetown, when I first went back to grad school, In 2006, a professor handed me an article written by Ottman Spocker, that's his last name, and it was about Carl Jung and Wolfgang Pauli, the great Nobel Prize winning co-founder of quantum physics, the Copenhagen Interpretation. Mm -hmm. And Jung and Pauli, following Plato, their strategy for discovering the archetypes of the collective unconscious was to find parallels or mirror symmetries between the laws of psychology and the laws of physics, because mind and matter, their theory said, both radiate from the same underlying transcendental source, which they they coined the word psychoid, Mm -hmm. or at least used it in a new way. And these are the archetypes. They're not mental Mm -hmm. or physical. They're the source of both. Mm -hmm. And if mind and matter both radiate from the same source, their theory was that the laws of psychology and the laws of physics will parallel or mirror each other. And here, with this near-death experience from Carl Jung, I found a perfect parallel with holographic string theory. I call it holographic string theory because it's string theory with the addition of the holographic principle, which Susskind and his partner, the Nobel Prize-winning physicist Gerard Hooft from the Netherlands, devised to save the principle of information conservation from Stephen Hawking, who said information is swallowed by black holes. But that parallel, and- that was the
0: essence of the dissertation and that's the foundation yeah. of the book. Beautiful. Yeah, that's a a, a lovely overview of the map of, of the trajectory of how this was formed. And I'm curious because it would seem like you to to continue this inquiry with with the intensity that you did. Have you ever had a near death experience yourself? No, I have not. I have mm-hmm. had tremendous mystical experiences
1: under the influence of psychedelic drugs. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what the statute of limitations is, but it was in college, and uh, let's just leave it at that. But they were incredibly powerful,
0: LSD. And did, they, and did they reinforce this model of that Jung was describing for you? Like, Did you say, okay, I recognize that in my own experience? Well, it was more the other way around, uh, yep. because I'd had those before I'd read Carl Jung, I,
1: about the same time as I discovered Carl Jung. And that's kind of what opened my mind to the possibility of these mystical experiences. Having had them myself personally, it was in the in the summer of 1990 um, at the California Institute of Integral Studies. I also studied uh, with Richard Tarnas, mm-hmm. author of *The Passion of the Western Mind*, a great summary of Western philosophy, the history of it, and also *Cosmos and Psyche*, which is him explaining the history of Western philosophy through the astrological lens. So in in 1990, Uranus and Neptune were conjunct, which is a very potent archetypal alignment for mystical experiences and the birth of philosophies and religion like Plato and Christianity. And uh, it was for me as well. It was really powerful and it made me become disenthralled with Striving for money and economic success. Not that I'm against it, but Mm -hmm. I wasn't going to, I didn't, I lost a taste for it. And I gained a powerful hunger and thirst for these potent feelings of unity with God and the cosmos and nature and everything around me. So that, you know, once I had those experiences, I realized there's where the real gold is. And it reinforced my Catholic upbringing as a child with, you know, treasure in heaven and Right. I, I so I've had personal experiences that I believe in, mm-hmm. in these kinds of experiences, but I've never had a, something quite as powerful as
0: Carl Jung's near-death experience. Yeah, and what you're describing, you know, the, the acronym SAND is science and non-duality, but it seems like the ultimate non-dual experience, and it's what you're offering is a map to understand that non-dual experience, and. We create these artificial divisions, so we, we, we put things into categorizations. We say, this is over here, this is over here. But this model that, that you're putting forth that, that's related to Jung and string theory seems like a way to dissolve division, so to, to dissolve difference.
1: Yeah, and I address that topic in the book, and in, and in a class I put out, based on the book, it's called Immortality and the Unreality of Death, A Hero's Journey Through Philosophy, Cosmology, and Physics. Mm -hmm. And it's about the fundamental oneness of everything. A singularity is a point of infinite density that contains the entire universe, all of space-time, literally united in a mathematical point. That's a gravitational singularity. But I also say that following the Vedanta tradition... I I know Shankara is the famous Mm non-dualist. And then after him came the Vaishnava reformers, Ramanuja, Madhavacharya, and I'd say the final one was Chaitanya in the 16th century. So Shankara said, you know, there's Atman, the individual subjective point of view, and there's Brahman, the all-encompassing precognitive bliss from which all potential forms emerge. And Shankara's opinion was that Atman is is an illusion, like a doll made of salt. should return to the ocean and dissolve and become one. And then the Vaishnava reformers said, well, there's also an individual. Mm-hmm. And there's an individual personal god, Vishnu, and there's individual souls. And Chaitanya synthesized these two opposites. And it wasn't that the, the Vaishnava reformers were saying there's not Brahman, but Chaitanya, I think, provided a formula that, he summarized in the Sanskrit slogan, Achintya Beta Beta Tattva, inconceivably simultaneously one and different, that we're all one merged in Brahman. And simultaneously we retain our individuality as Atman, although every Atman is part of the Supreme Atman. Mm. So there's a oneness by virtue of our union with impersonal Brahman, and there's also a oneness by our union with the supreme Atman, and then there's just our individuality. So it's kind of uh, non-duality and duality simultaneously, and that both are applicable. And how could that be? And then he says, it's inconceivable. (laughs) It's the Mm -hmm. ground of explanation for which there is no further explanation. So that's the philosophy that I believe in and i see this psyche equal singularity equation is falling in line with that Mm -hmm. so everything is one all planets all universes in the multiverse everything is is one indistinguishable entity and simultaneously we retain our individuality
0: The idea of the archetype, I, th- I see this as somehow related to uh, Atman and, and the individual. And I'm always curious with the concept of the archetype is we, we can't experience the archetype directly. Like we can't experience pure, whatever it is, you know, masculinity or pure silence or pure beauty, but we can sort of approach it in the human form. And so I, I often wonder, like, what's the what's the use of even having these archetypes if they can't be experienced directly?
1: Right. Well, the they can't be observed empirically, and but can they be observed directly? Um, I don't know. That that's a good question. I think the following Plato, I would s- define the soul as well. I define it as a gravitational singularity, but I. Say that all of the archetypes of the collective unconscious are condensed into the ultimate archetype, which Plato called the idea of the good, Mm. and which Carl Jung called the archetype of the self, as well as the Unus Mundus and the God archetype and the One. Mm -hmm. So, by experiencing the self, I believe we're experiencing the ultimate archetype of the self or God. And so I do believe we can experience these archetypes directly. I don't think we can explain them adequately with words. We can't present them in some kind of a scientific experiment. But, but what you said is a, it's a fundamental philosophical question. Can we? I, I've been reading Hegel a lot recently. I've been reading him throughout my philosophical career. But he addresses this issue. He says, some people say you can't know God and that it's impious to claim you can know God. And then he says, no, you're commanded by the Bible to know God. And it's not easy, but you can know God. Uh, Immanuel Kant, he says, you cannot know the thing in itself, the noumenon, because all of your knowledge is filtered through these a priori built-in lenses of cognition. So there's no way you can know anything directly. It's mediated through these lenses of cognition. And Hegel's said, no, you can know them because more or less you are these lenses of cognition. So it's an open question. Uh, I I really wouldn't know how to, you know, prove either side. Mm. But I feel like we can at least tap those. Ar- those archetypes are the essence of the self. Mm-hmm. And although most of us, including myself, are not self-realized, it, through mystical experiences and just, Everyone, I think, occasionally, if they live long enough, has some little peak experience where they can take a peek at these ultimate forms. So um, can you experience these archetypes directly? I think you can. Not that I have a tremendous amount of experience doing so. <laughs> but philosophically, I would say I I think we are the sum of all archetypes condensed in a single point. Yeah.
0: And that that's another way to talk about the singularity these infinite singularities that are that are present as as psyche and as that that condensed within them is everything that ever was and ever will be
1: yeah yeah and that's plato's philosophy that's the foundation of western civilization so plato wrote the dialogues featuring his martyred mentor socrates i always call him his martyred mentor because socrates was executed by the city-state of Athens for believing in gods of his own invention instead of the gods recognized by the state and for corrupting the youth. That was what they claimed. And Plato presents Socrates presenting his theory of the absolute ideas, which Carl Jung called the archetypes of the collective unconscious. And Jung and Pali both said, this is just a restatement of Plato's theory of absolute ideas. Mm-hmm. I know Alfred North Whitehead, the mathematician and theologian he said the safest general characterization of European of the European philosophical tradition is that everything's a series of footnotes to Plato. Mm-hmm. It was almost an exact quote there. I believe Jung is one of the most complete footnotes to Plato, with his theory of the archetypes of the collective unconscious. But according to that theory, and I think it's most famously summarized in the Cave Allegory, mm-hmm. in, which is in book seven of The Republic. He says, This world is like um, if you take prisoners down into an underground cave at birth, you chain them head to foot and force them to look at the back wall of a cave. Behind them, above the entrance to the cave, above the tunnels, a blazing fire. In between the prisoners and the entrance and the fire above it is a wall that rises up halfway up the height of the cave, and then guards walk silhouettes behind the cave. So their shadows are not cast on the back wall, but these silhouettes of natural objects like a tree or a rabbit are projected. The shadows are projected on the back wall. The prisoners see their own shadows. They see the shadows of the puppets and they pride themselves on predicting which shadow will come in which sequence. I think it's an allusion to early astronomers predicting which planet would come in which order. And then Socrates via Plato's Um, representation of him says, now imagine someone comes down from above into the cave, frees a prisoner, turns him around, says, look, here's the reality. But the fire blinds him. He can't see anything. He thinks he's gone mad. He wishes he could just go back to normal. And then he drags him up the rough and steep ascent out to the outer world. And now the sun really blinds him and pains his eyes. But gradually at night, he can look at things and start to figure things out. And even in the day, he can look at things in puddles of water, and he can see the sun reflected in puddles of water. And finally, he can look at the sun directly for a moment. And then he realizes, here's the source of everything. Oh, what a horrible and and abominable situation I was in thinking that cave was real. Mm -hmm. It's the sun. This is the source of this visible world and everything down in the cave. And then the person who freed him says, okay, now it's your turn to return the favor and go back in the cave and teach those people reality and then he has to readjust his eyes to the darkness but eventually he can predict the shadows ten thousand times better than anybody else because he just looks behind him and he can predict it's going to be shadow it's going to be tree rabbit you know dog and they're amazed at how excellent he is at predicting the shadows but the final explanation of the allegory is that as the shadows on the wall of the cave are to the three-dimensional forms that they represented, so are the three-dimensional forms we see on Earth, like shadows of these ultimate archetypes, the absolute ideas. And all of the absolute ideas are condensed in the ultimate idea of the good, which is the archetype of the sun. So that everything we can experience here in the material world, including emotional experiences and things like justice and beauty, they're all shadowy, dream projections or mirror reflections of these ultimate idea the idea of justice the idea of beauty the idea of tree the idea of human and all of those
0: ideas come from the idea of the good hmm. I recognize that humans have this um, we're drawn towards towards story and to creating to creating story as a way to describe reality and I'm I'm thinking, so let's say some ancient people were exploring uh, in present-day Colorado, and they're in the mountains, and they find seashells embedded in the rocks. And I am imagining stories of you know gods putting it there or mystical birds or et cetera, so forth. Whereas the, the real reason that there's seashells embedded in the mountains is because the mountains and the sea are the same. And I'm wondering, in all these layers of, you know, we're talking about black holes and string theory and Jungian philosophy, is there a more essential, simple explanation, or are we creating sort of layers of complexity to to rationalize why there are seashells in the mountains?
1: Right, yeah. Well, for Plato's cave allegory, it's got a lot of layers. It seems complicated. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's unnecessarily complex. Um And here's one of the reasons that I think so, is that explaining the cave allegory, Plato then said, or he actually preceded it with the divided line analogy, where he divided reality into four segments. He said, imagine a line, let's say it's a vertical line, now cut it into two unequal parts, one larger and one smaller, and now cut each of those segments by the same proportion." The largest segment up at the top is the spiritual world of these archetypal forms. They have a reflection, like a mirror reflection. And those are the mathematical forms which are eternal. They're like the shadows of these higher level forms like justice and beauty. Those two segments represent the eternal world that's intelligible, that you cannot see with your eyes but you can perceive through your intellect. Now, the uh, bottom segments, the shadows of the mathematical forms or the mirror reflections of the mathematical forms are the physical three dimensional objects we see. And then finally, they have actual shadows and mirror reflections in puddles of water and actual mirrors. And those are two dimensional shadows. So, working back up from the bottom, the bottom level of material reality, which is temporary, it's not eternal, it comes and it goes and it fades. It's never the same from one moment to the next. Mm-hmm. The bottom level of reality is actual shadows, two dimensional shadows and mirror reflections. And those are projected from three dimensional objects in the material world. That's the material world. Those three dimensional objects and the way they interact with each other are like shadows or mirror reflections of the bottom layer of the eternal, intelligible world, which are the mathematical forms of physics. Those mathematical forms are the shadows or mirror reflections of the higher order of forms, all of which come from the the absolute idea of the good, which is like an eye up at the top of the line. Hmm. And he set out the academic tradition, Plato opened the first academy in the olive grove north of Athens called academia. And he said, if we want to open the eye of the soul to the idea of the good and these other absolute ideas— the best way is to study the mathematical, the eternal mathematical forms that describe the physical forms, culminating with astronomy and music, which are three-dimensional solids moving in a, in a regular periodic way that, by which you study time. Mm-hmm. So you study the math of the ascending dimensions of nature, linear arithmetic, two-dimensional Euclidean geometry. Euclid was part of Plato's Academy. Three-dimensional geometry and then three-dimensional geometry and movement, which is time. If you study those mathematical forms, you'll gradually perceive these, the higher level. So it's a test. It's a way you can test his theory. Mm -hmm. And I believe that over the past two dozen centuries, we've been testing Plato's theory. And I believe Leonard Susskind and Harard Tahouf, his partner, when they came up with holographic string theory, they've brought us full circle back to Plato's cosmology. And so that's why I don't think it's overly complex. There's, I don't think he's just kind of creating a myth ad hoc to explain things Mm -hmm. because he created a scientific test for his theory. Mm -hmm. And I believe it's passed the test in the early 1990s. I talked about that Uranus-Neptune conjunction. This is when holographic string theory was, was formulated. And it's such a, a, a fulfillment, I think, of Plato's prediction of the future of the mathematical academic tradition of physics that, that gives me reason to believe that it was accurate. It wasn't um, just coming up, pulling, pulling ideas out of the back of his mind. I think he was most likely an enlightened individual,
0: and he knew how to help others along that path. And can you say more about that relationship between string theory and its ability to describe the absolute or the ultimate nature of reality? Sure, sure. So, now, Leonard
1: Susskind is overtly an atheist. Yeah. One of his books is The Cosmic Landscape, String Theory and the Illusion of Intelligent Design. So, he says Mm -hmm. the universe is not intelligently designed. He rejects notions of absolute ideas and God and soul. Uh, I think he goes uh, the extra mile to reject those theories because his theory seems so similar to certain mystical traditions. He doesn't want people to get confused. But the holographic string theory came about when Leonard Susskind was at a conference in physics in California, and he heard Stephen Hawking describing his theory that information is swallowed by a black hole. Mm-hmm so this is where it starts to get a little technical we've all heard of the um the principle of the conservation of energy and mass mm-hmm. can, energy and mass can be transformed but you can't destroy or create them well there's an even more fundamental principle of information conservation which i learned from leonard susskind in a black hole Things are swallowed, says Stephen Hawking. The energy stays constant in the universe because a black hole, although it's swallowing matter and energy, which are equivalent terms, it's putting back out what's called Hawking radiation, Hmm. which is when these particle, virtual particle-antiparticle pairs emerge from the quantum vacuum, and then normally they recombine and annihilate each other. But if they emerge right on the razor's edge of a black hole, the event horizon— The antiparticle gets sucked in, and the virtual particle is released as a real particle. So a particle of energy goes into the black hole, but then the black hole draws another particle out from the quantum vacuum to maintain the balance of energy. But what is not conserved is the information that goes into the black hole. And here's the analogy I I tend to use, and it's from Leonard Susskind. I think he mentioned a bomb or a hand grenade. At any rate, if you exploded a hand grenade... All of the energy and mass of that grenade is still going to be in the universe. Every atom of gas and metal is somewhere scattered throughout the universe. And furthermore, if you had a computer sophisticated enough, you could retrace the trajectory of every one of those atoms back to its source, and you could reconstruct that hand grenade. The information is still there, although extremely scrambled. Mm -hmm. However, if that... Hand grenade exploded near the event horizon of a black hole, and the whole mess got sucked into the black hole. You wouldn't be able to recreate it. The information describing everything once it's past the event horizon is erased from the
0: universe, says Stephen Hawking. And this so, was the the black hole war. So, this, so this i this concept I've heard this many times, and I've, I'm still not clear on it. The idea that black holes they essentially flatten information. So, mm-hmm. if I were to take a, a photo. You know, the, the, there's information of the people, and there's information of the of the colors and the photons and the atoms. And I were to drop that into a black hole, it would flatten that at a molecular level to the point where it ne- it would never have existed in time. Is that correct? Well, here's here's what Leonard
1: Susskind and Gerard de Hooft came up with. They mm-hmm. said if you follow that information past the event horizon then Stephen Hawking would be correct. You and every bit of information that you see would be swallowed by the singularity, and it's gone. But if -hmm. you were watching from outside the black hole, you would see something different. Mm -hmm. You would see the fundamental strings of which everything is made. So string theory says the fundamental quantum particles are made of even smaller strings that are too small to detect down at the Planck scale. What you would see is all of those strings slow down as they approach the event horizon, and get smeared out around the event horizon as if on a two-dimensional holographic film. Mm -hmm. And then the outgoing Hawking radiation would release each bit of information back into the universe, thereby saving the principle of the conservation of information. And Susskind goes on to say the universe is an inside-out black hole. It was Stephen Hawking who first looked at it that way. He reversed Roger Penrose's model of a black hole. He reversed the time dimension. Instead of contracting into a singularity, it's just expanding away from one. And where space-time is expanding at the speed of light is called the cosmic horizon. If you go beyond the cosmic horizon, you can't get back into the universe because space-time is expanding faster than light there. So you would lose the information from the universe again through the opposite direction of an inside-out black hole. But if you were in the universe watching that, information approached the horizon, you would see it get smeared out all around this enormous two-dimensional surface of the three-dimensional ball of the universe, the interior of the horizon of the cosmos, as if on a holographic film. He says it's infinitely hot. And then it would radiate back into the universe with the cosmic microwave background radiation, which is kind of the inside out Hawking radiation. It's the echo of the Big Bang on these fundamentally elastic strings of energy that create what Susskind calls the cinematic hologram of three-dimensional space. Hmm. So yes, information is recorded on a two-dimensional surface of a three-dimensional ball, either the event horizon of a black hole or the cosmic horizon of the inside-out black hole universe. Mm -hmm. The three-dimensional material world that we experience is like a shadow projected from this eternal film where the past, the present, and the future are superimposed at each point. Hmm. And Brian Greene, the famous string theorist Brian Greene, great educator, also an atheist, he said in two different books, this is very similar to Plato's cave allegory. Yeah. But he says the one difference is that in Plato's cave, the three dimensional objects are higher, are a higher order of reality than the two dimensional shadows. Hmm. But here, In holographic string theory, the deeper reality is the two-dimensional surface. That's the eternal realm. And the three-dimensional world of forms unfolding through time is the shadow of the two-dimensional surface. And I address that in the book and in the class. And I say, yes, it's two-dimensional from the mathematical perspective of us here on Earth. But if you go there during a near-death experience, for example... Or some kind of a mystical experience it's infinitely deep the horizon of the cosmos is filled with all of the archetypes that we
0: can experience here it's the hyper real because string theory if i'm not mistaken so there's it, it it opens the door to multi-dimensional reality because strings vibrate in maybe 26 dimensions or something like that i'm not sure what the latest yeah right dimensionality is i haven't really heard much about string theory actually in a while, but I'm sure there's still research happening, or
1: right. happening there. Yeah, so I I am not a mathematical physicist. I read what the mathematical yes. physicists write for the educated right. non-expert. Yeah. So I and some say 26 dimensions in Susskind's books. He says that uh, there are three dimensions of space that we can see, and then the extra dimensions of space whatever number you give them because it's, you know, six extra dimensions, nine extra dimensions, 26, they're curled up and compactified yep. at each point of three-dimensional space mm-hmm. in these geometrical shapes called Calabi Yao manifolds. Uh, Xing Tung Yao was one of the founders of this, discoverers of these geometrical shapes. Mm-hmm. He wrote a book comparing string theory to Plato. So that's why yep. I mention him in particular. But the... Extra dimensions of space are compactified in these geometrical shapes down at the Planck scale, which is the bottom level of the physical world, 10 to the negative 33 meters. Um, Susskind says a, a string is down at that level. You can't empirically observe them because we don't have the technology that's powerful enough. But that's where the
0: extra dimensions are. And, and strings are one-dimensional?
1: Yeah. And, and that always confused me. I'm like, one-dimensional? Yeah. Literally? Or does it have a tiny bit of width? And they're like, yeah, the Planck length width, which is tantamount to nothing. See, I I prefaced this by saying I am not a mathematical physicist. I I read about it and I'm like, okay, so it's one-dimensional, meaning it's got the width of the Planck length or something to that effect. Strings are one-dimensional. The event horizon and the cosmic horizon of the universe are two-dimensional although curved, in three-dimensional space. And then we have the three-dimensional volume, and each point of the three-dimensional volume of space contains the extra-spatial dimensions curled up tightly. Mm -hmm. Those strings wrap around those compactified dimensions, and the frequency of the vibration of the strings combined with the geometry of the shapes around which they're woven account for the different quantum particles that we perceive, which are like various notes played on a more fundamental string. Right.
0: And I'm, you know uh, what we're speaking about today, and all of these—these these are models of of reality. And w- w- we're maybe thinking of the model as going from more simple to more complex. But if we turn the model around, then so now we're we've gone to one dimensionality, and now zero dimensionality and emptiness and form. So we've been talking a lot about singularity and and form. Maybe it's emptiness. Maybe that's the root. Or the end point of reality that we're well, searching for.
1: Yeah. Well, you mentioned end point, and I would agree with you literally there. Mm-hmm. Zero dimensionality, a s- gravitational singularity. Mm. So the foundation of the theory that I present in the book is psyche equals singularity, mm-hmm. and that is a translation of a f- of an equation that Carl Jung ended a letter he wrote to J.R. Smithies in, on leap day, February 29, 1952. And he was trying to, they were discussing between each other, corresponding about the relationship between psychic energy and mass. Mm-hmm. So Carl Jung learned about relativity theory from Einstein himself in Switzerland between 1909 and 1913. And that was when... Einstein had already formulated special relativity, and he was working on general relativity, his theory of gravity. So Jung said, okay, I believe the psyche is its own thing. It's not a byproduct of material energy. It's its own source of energy. But if it's got energy, it should have measurable mass, because E equals mc squared. Energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. The units of energy can be translated to the units of mass if you multiply the units of mass times the speed of light squared. So a tremendous amount of energy in every little bit of matter. Well, then why can't we measure the mass of the psyche? Previously, Jung had speculated it's because the mass is so small, we lack the technology to measure something that small. But in the letter to J.R. Smithies, which I call the leap day letter, because it was leap day, he said, maybe the reason we can't measure the mass of the psyche is because it's infinite. And he speculated about the speed of light. If you were to take a material object and accelerate it to the speed of light, it would disappear from space and time. According to special relativity, if you take an object and you accelerate it toward the speed of light, it'll shrink in the direction of travel, that's called aberration, and its time will slow down. That's called time dilation. At the speed of light, it will shrink to zero volume, and the clock will stop. So it will, be, it will disappear from space and time. If you go faster than that, then who knows what happens. A gravitational singularity is a point of infinite gravity. So general relativity says gravity and acceleration are equivalent terms, like g-force. If you slam on the gas in your car, you get pushed against the seat, like gravity. So at an in, a gravitational singularity is equivalent to infinite speed. What would happen to extension in space if you had infinite speed? It would be nothing. And its, its existence in time would also disappear. So maybe the psyche gains intensity at the expense of extension in space. And he talked about infinite intensity of energy. And he concluded the letter with this equation. Psyche equals highest intensity in the smallest space. Mm -hmm. Highest intensity of energy or mass. The highest intensity of mass is infinite intensity. The smallest space is zero volume. And that is the definition of a gravitational singularity, which Carl Schwarzschild derived from Einstein's general theory of relativity in 1916. So psyche equals highest intensity in the smallest space can be translated as psyche equals singularity a point of infinite density and zero extension in space. And it contains all of the information of the entire universe. The past, the present, and the future are contained in each singularity. And I'll just add one more very important point that I learned from a philosopher named Robert Bruce Ware who wrote a book about Hegel. And in that book, he compared Hegel's concept of the absolute idea to a gravitational singularity. He says there's a singularity at the Big Bang. There's a singularity in black holes. And when you try to combine general relativity and quantum mechanics, you find that there's a singularity at every point of the underlying quantum vacuum. So singularities are everywhere. Well, if you apply Leibniz, the mathematician and theologian, 17th century, he co independently co-discovered calculus when Isaac Newton did. And Isaac Newton gave us this mechanistic, dualistic cosmology, whereas Leibniz gave us monadology, which is a lot more in line with the psyche equals singularity equation. Leibniz said his principle of the identity of indiscernibles. If you cannot discern a difference between two things, they are identical. And Robert Bruce Ware said a singularity is a point. It's a mathematical point. So you can't distinguish one singularity from the other by its structure or its size. They're all identical mathematical points. And furthermore, although they are located in different points of space-time, they all stand outside of space-time because a point of infinite gravity is equivalent to a point traveling infinitely fast, and then that takes you outside of space and time. Therefore, you cannot distinguish between all of the infinity of singularities So they're all one. They appear in different points of space-time, and in that respect, they are different. They have—and I am equating the psyche with the singularity. So each of us, Mm -hmm. I am saying, is literally what physicists call a gravitational singularity. But that's just a word for where the laws of physics stop. Mm -hmm. A lot of physicists say, I don't believe in that because that's not physics anymore. That's religion. That's mysticism. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So all singularities are one Although simultaneously, we're all different. That brings us back to this Achintya Beta Beta Tattva that Chaitanya talked about in the Vedanta philosophy.
0: Wondering about the why, you know, th- these are fun concepts to think about and to explore. But what do you think are some of the practical implications if people were to uh, explore these ideas and live these ideas?
1: That's a good question. I, that's why one of the reasons I wrote, I, I created this class. So a friend mm-hmm. of mine, Beto Paredes, he saw my YouTube videos on the book. And he contacted me He says, this is great. I want to get in on this. I want to help you spread these ideas. And he had the idea for teaching a class, kind of walking people through it with slides and speaking. And the idea that we came to agree on was this immortality and the unreality of death, a hero's journey through philosophy, cosmology, and physics class. I say, oh, what's the practical reality of this knowledge? of, you know, psyche equal singularity. And one of the big practical benefits you get is to address the fear of death. Hmm. So I bring in, in that class, Ernest Becker. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning author of The Denial of Death in 1973. And he says, the fundamental mainspring of human activity is this fear of death. We want to live forever. Not only do we want to live forever, we want to live as heroes. And furthermore, we want our heroics to be appreciated eternally to an infinite degree, which requires that we believe in God. Whether there's a God or not, he's saying, this is the psychic need of, in, of human beings. He says that he distilled 20th century psychology after Freud, down to its essence, and it brought us back to Soren Kierkegaard, the 19th century theologian, who said you need to take a leap of faith in God, that your reason will always find reasons to doubt, the infinite regress of reasons. Why is this? Because of that. Well, why is that? Because of that. It'll never end. So at some point, he says, you have to just stop questioning and take a leap of faith. So the practical value, I say, of this knowledge of psych singularity, how souls go to the horizon of the cosmos is that it helps us address this fundamental fear of death and overcome it. And then all of that psychic energy that's wound up trying to create denials of death can be absorbed in this realization psyche equals singularity because first it overcomes your fear of death. I am an eternal soul. I have good scientific reasons for believing so because the laws of physics do mirror the laws of, psych, of Jungian psychology, which is the same as Platonic philosophy, just as Plato predicted, just as Carl Jung and Wolfgang Pauli predicted. And furthermore, that singularity, it grants me belief in the eternality of my soul. It also helps me believe in the Supreme Soul, the ultimate singularity in whom we are all participating, like heroes performing on the cosmic stage, which is what Ernest Becker says, the human psyche needs the most to fully develop ourselves, to achieve what Carl Jung called individuation, which is a state of psychic wholeness through the union of all opposites. We need to believe we are eternal souls performing heroically for God and that God appreciates what we're doing eternally. And God's infinite mind will eternally appreciate the meaningfulness of our lives. So I think practically this philosophy which can be reduced to the equation psyche equals singularity really helps with that with with what becker said is the ultimate quest of the human life and Mm -hmm. plato in the symposium he had the priestess diatoma explain that same basic theory to socrates when they're describing love that love will help you more than anything in the world and this whole Theory of the Absolute Ideas and Ascending the Ladder of Love. That was the divided line analogy. If you study the mathematical forms that describe three-dimensional physical forms, that's one step up on the ladder towards these higher order of absolute ideas. And ultimately, you can open the eye of the soul to the, ex- the ultimate idea of the good, the source of beauty and justice and equality. So I, I see the, the book and the class as a ladder toward this belief, it gets us closer and closer. It makes the leap of faith, I believe, easier to make. You still need to make a leap, but you've got good reasons to do it. And you have a ladder, at least. You've got a ladder. <laughs> <laughs> you you feel at least like you're making progress. And even if it's a delusion, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's a worthwhile delusion to spend your time until you uh, die and back into the mechanical, meaningless, <laughs> soulless <laughs>
0: cosmos. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. Well, thank you, Todd, for opening these portals through your book and through your course. We'll have links to that in the show notes so people can connect with you. And thank you for this conversation today, which I hope we can continue in the future, talking about more. Like you said, we just scratched the surface. So,
1: right. Well, um, thanks a lot, Michael. I was, I my friend Beto. He says, "Oh, you you got an email from Science and Non-Duality. This is huge. This is really big." <laughs> so I've been looking forward
0: to this. We have too. So thank you so much. And thank you for listening to The Sounds of Sand. We invite you to explore more of our talks, dialogues, videos, articles, events, and offerings through our website, scienceandnonduality.com. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider becoming a member to access our massive library of sand content, available exclusively to sand members. And we would love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify and share this episode with your family, friends, and all sentient beings. Be well.